Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. What makes human beings so complicated? How can we as business leaders unlock the secrets to better understand our peers and our teams? Robert Greene is a New York Times bestselling author who can help us break down the intricacies of human relationships to gain an advantage when relating to everyone around us. His work focuses on some of the most dark and powerful parts of human nature. And his books are held by everyone from war historians to the biggest musicians in the industry, including Jay-Z and 50 Cent. Robert, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jeffrey. My pleasure. Very impressive, your whole network well, here. Thank you. Well, we appreciate it. We kind of like our folks. They're good people, and we get a lot done, and there's a lot of uh, camaraderie. We get a little chance for education, a little chance for inspiration, motivation, and yeah, even some uh, monetization, depending on how engaged we are. So my first question for yeah. you, Robert, is what makes humans so difficult to understand sometimes? Well, it's it's a very complicated question. I could I could be here for three hours to answer it, and I still wouldn't even get to, you know very far. But the short answer is that people we're we're social animals, and we're conditioned from very early age to conceal exactly what we think and we feel. So when we're in a social situation, particularly at work, we're not just out there telling people exactly what we think of their projects, their ideas, particularly with the boss or the leader or anybody above us. We're always saying that their ideas are great. We tend to be a little more sycophantic than we usually are. So you're walking around and you're seeing people smile and you're hearing what they say, but you're not getting any kind of real insight into what's going on actually behind that smile, behind that mask that people wear in the office. And so you need to be able to decode their behavior. And I do a lot of consulting work for people who are very powerful like yourself. And the main problem that they have is not the technical aspects of their work. They're usually brilliant at finance or the apparel business. I was on the CEO. I was on the board of directors for a very powerful uh, apparel company. Um, it's not that they don't have a technical knowledge. It's that they don't understand people. They have all kinds of political problems, like that CFO that you were talking about. They don't realize that other people have egos. Everybody has an ego, but people who are powerful, who reach high positions, have even bigger egos than anyone else. So they're riddled with insecurities. You don't think that because they try and project uh, an aura of incredible power and confidence, but secretly they're feeling very insecure. And what you say and how you act and how you look, they're registering that. It's a whole language that's going on in your workplace that you have to learn this language just as you learn French or German or any other language. You have to learn about nonverbal communication. You have to learn about the, the subtext behind what people are saying, how to decode their behavior on and on and on. And that's why I wrote the book. That's my short answer. But that, but it is interesting because I, you know, let's take it a big powerful level. We got corporate job. I'm in a uh, CMO position. We step on the corporate plane. There's a pecking order of how you set on that plane. 
You can't okay. just take that seat. And then if the if the CEO's wife is there, you got to take a different seat. And right. there's all, you know, or even getting in the limo. God forbid you sit in the wrong place in the limo or the Uber now right. when you're with your boss or whatever. You, you've said in interviews that you want to alter how people look at the world. So how do you look at the world and, and what is it you're trying to alter? Well, I want you to be more aware of what's really going on in the world. And you have mm -hmm. to start from one very basic premise, which is a position of humility, that you don't know yourself. You don't understand who you are, what motivates your own behavior. So much of our behavior is unconscious. So much of our behavior is secretly motivated by emotions, not by rationality. So that when you make a plan, you think that you're being very rational and scientific and objective, but in fact, your all kinds of desires and wishes are infiltrating themselves into your plan. So you don't know yourself, number one. You have to get down on your hands and knees and admit that fact. And then you have to admit that you don't understand other people because your number one tendency is to project your own emotions, your own desires, your own wishes onto the people that you see. You're not aware of this. So my main goal in my book was to suddenly to make you aware of how little you know. That's, that was the Socratic method. Socrates, the great ancient Greek philosopher, his whole method was to make you aware that you don't know anything. And once you were at that position, you can begin to learn. You can begin to understand, all right, I'm, I'm feeling angry or frustrated or excited. Why am I feeling that way? Instead of just reacting, you can then begin to try and understand who you are and what is motivating your behavior. And then when you look at other people, you don't assume that you know what, what they're up to or what they're thinking. You, you have to make an effort. You have to try and project yourself into their spirit, into how they're thinking, the empathy, which I have a whole chapter on. And it's a skill that you can learn. So the main thing is I'm trying to make you aware that you're not really aware of what's going on around you. Is it, so I always have this saying, Robert, that I say, I don't know what I don't know. And, right. and I, and I try to go at that with that sense of discovery and, you know, a little bit of wonderment, but sometimes I understand by listening into other people that there's a pony in there somewhere and there's something I'm going to learn that's secret, you know, and it's always, as we say about listening, but, but at the same time, there's sometimes I want this, I want that. I want to go a certain place or do that. So how do you balance that between the two by, 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 being that empathetic kind of thing, I got to listen to everybody. And I'll say it this way. I got to listen to everybody. I got to take in all the stuff. Uh, I got to either pretend like I really want it or, but I really want to go here. Okay. How do I balance that? Well, if you're in a leadership position, it, it is a delicate dance because you can get inundated. Things can get too democratic where you're listening to everyone and you can never yeah. make a decision. You're like Hamlet. You can't, you're paralyzed by all this information that you have and all these people giving you advice. So you, as a leader, you have to do this delicate dance. You have to be democratic or you have to at least appear democratic, as I talk about in the 48 Laws of Power. You do have to listen to, to people and it has to be sincere. And I talk about the listening skills because people, we all, everybody talks about listening better and listening, blah, blah, blah. But that's not really the problem because we all kind of listen. But to truly listen, to truly understand what is happening in the person's mind, what is motivating them, what is their spirit, what is their way of how they look at the world is difficult. 
And so I'm trying to take you to another level in your listening skills. But at a certain point in a leadership position, I have a chapter on what I call authority and how to project authority and how to be a leader of authority. At a certain point, you have a vision. You understand more than anybody else in the company where you're taking this taking everybody. You're the person in charge. You're the general, the person on the horse or whatever, whatever metaphor you want. And you have to be clear about that. And you have to, at, at some point, you have to stop all the listening, all the empathy. You take in as much advice, as much information from people. You're open to new ideas, but at a certain point, you cut it off and you act. And as they say, it's a delicate dance. You have to know when to, to be empathetic and to listen but also you yourself have a very clear idea of where you're taking things and you're not going to deviate from that. You're very firm about it, but you have to have both qualities. If you're too firm, people will think you're an autocrat and they won't listen to you and they won't give you real feedback about what you're up to. And if you're too empathetic, you'll never come to a decision. You'll never know how to lead. So you have to balance between the two. C-Suite Radio. You mentioned The 48 Laws of Power, which is one of the most requested books in the American prison system, at the same time was was labeled a mega cult classic by Fast Company. What what makes this book so popular? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of a cult classic because it's different from every other self-help book. I was a bit frustrated at the time before I wrote The 48. It's my first book. I wrote it. It came out in 1998. It seems like a hundred years ago right now. But um, I wrote that book. And prior to that, I had been working in Hollywood as a screenwriter and working for directors. And I was really kind of irritated by by the way people talk about business and what really goes on in the world. Because I saw a lot of people being very manipulative, being very clever, but always kind of presenting themselves, particularly in Hollywood, as the most liberal the most woke person around. But meanwhile, they were very, very nasty to the people working for them. They were extremely manipulative. They were all about power. And you does, go, this, does this, sound, this sounds a little bit like the Ellen show right now, I'm, <laughs> I, I think. I know. Just, the Ellen show? <laughs> the Ellen show. We're seeing that right now play out, right? Well, we're seeing the mask being ripped off from, from Ellen. Yeah, very much yeah. so. But that's, that's the human nature part where people, I say, present a, a certain persona and I talk about it in one of my chapters, I call it the shadow. The more someone tries to present a front of being nice, the more you can be certain that they're hiding the opposite characteristic. But anyway, to get back to the 48 laws, I was very frustrated because you go to self-help books and everything is kind of touchy-feely and sensitive and positive, et cetera. And that's not the reality of the world that I've been through. I've been, I've had so many, prior to writing the books, I had 80 different jobs in journalism, in Hollywood. I, I, I was in construction work. I worked in a detective agency. I saw all kinds of games being played. And this reality was not being reflected in the books that I read. And it irritated, it angered me. And I said, I'm going to write about what I really feel is going on in, in the business world or any realm at all, where people have egos, where people want power, and they do what they can to disguise it. And the main metaphor for that book was, 
in the past, you had Machiavelli, you had people like Cesare Borgia, you had Louis XIV, and they were wearing powdered wigs and funny kind of outfits, but they're still the same people that you see walking around in your office. There are Louis XIVs in your office. There are Cesare Borgias in your office. They're not as violent and bloody, but they're still using the same laws of power. So that was why I wrote that book. Yeah, well, they're, they're, those knives are there. I've been in those corporate rooms and then on those C-suites before. And, um, it, it's very much that game being played out. And, you know, to go along with that, that kind of that prison uh, piece of it, you, you also wrote a book called The Art of Seduction, but that's not allowed in the U.S. prison systems. Why? Yeah. Well, thankfully, so I wouldn't want that book to be. But, but the, the, it's a bit of a, a cliche about that book. It's not really about sexual seductions, although it is obviously one of the themes. It's about seducing people in general. It's about the soft sell. So the 48 Laws of Power is a little bit of a mix of the hard and the soft. It's what Napoleon said, putting your iron fist inside of a velvet glove. How to be firm, but, you're, but everybody just feels the velvet in your fist. Seduction is the complete soft sell. It's total the, the total velvet claw. And so it's a form of power. It's a way to, to, to work in a, in a court-like environment, which any office is, where people have their egos, and to socially be extremely powerful. And one of the people that I, I have in there were some of the most successful social seducers in, in history, like Benjamin Disraeli or Pamela Averill Harriman. These people were incredible courtiers. So it's not just about the sexual part of seduction. It's about the psychology of making people like you, of making people fall in, <clears throat> excuse me, fall into your spell. Yeah, well, or Bill Clinton. I mean, I've, I've said... Yeah, you know, Bill Clinton's a great seducer. I, I worked with the CEO of another of another big company, and I remember sitting next to a lesbian executive who said, "She goes, she, I I feel I will be pregnant if I sat next to him." It was, that, it was like that was like an ultimate ultimate kind of uh, piece to be able to say that because he was so articulate, so. So just so it was, he had a way and, and everybody kind of has these auras about them. Don't you think, Robert, when they're at that level, that yeah. that seducer, they have that where you just immediately sucked in and you see it. And it has nothing to do I, I, with I, their I, looks, really. I met I met uh, Clinton once just briefly shook his hand, but there was definitely something there. The way he looked in your eye, he was engaging with you. Right. He was looking at you in a way that was it may have been a little bit fake. I can't really say but there was something very different about it. But there's a quote that I love that is about Benjamin Disraeli. This woman said his great rival was this man named um, Goldsmith, I believe. I can't remember his full name, Gold something or other. Excuse me here. Um, who was the prime minister at the time. And they said, when I sat next to Mr. Goldsmith, I thought he was the most brilliant man in the world. But when I sat next to Disraeli, I thought that I was the most brilliant person in the world. And that's uh-huh. the difference between a great seducer and someone who isn't. <laughs> By the way, with Bill Clinton, it's a genuine thing. He has it. He has that. It's a, he, he totally has it. It's there. And it's, and it's just part of his nature of who he is. I've, met, I've been with him numerous times, and uh, it's, it's always there. And no matter what the presence, I've watched. You watch people who are very powerful melt like that, just melt. Yeah. And, and there are certain people, I think, that have it. And I, I think they could be janitors. They could be presidents. And they have that, you know. Well, the skill of Bill Clinton in particular was he always kind of 
became the spirit of the person he was with. So if he was talking to his auto workers in Detroit, he suddenly became that guy from Arkansas who grew up in a trailer, et cetera. But when he was talking to, to you know, Jay-Z or some, some somebody, you know, a, a celebrity, he suddenly became the guy who went to Oxford. He knew how to adapt to his audience. He could be an incredible chameleon. And that's a very powerful skill. Uh, as opposed to his his spouse, who is the opposite of that. I mean, I, not to be derogatory, but having met, uh, you know, Secretary Clinton, Sen- Senator Clinton, worked with her a lot. Say she's the opposite of that. She's black and white, very very u- u- unique opposites. All right, sorry, we, we I don't want to make this political. C-suite radio. We have a lot of folks here who uh, are authoring books, have authored books, who are always doing deals. And and you've done so many of these, but you co-authored the book, The 50th Law, with none other than 50 Cent. Yeah. All right. And then, no offense, Robert, but when I think of you, I don't think of you sitting next to 50 Cent, if you if you know what I mean, right? So how, how but I, I'm not, you know, I'm not, it's not a derogatory thing. It's just not the first thing that pops into my head, you know? So how did you do that deal? How did that come about? So I don't look like a thug? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Appearances can be very deceptive. Um, well, my, my first book, The 48 Laws, was very popular in the hip-hop community because a lot of these people that came out in the late 90s, they were, they were becoming entrepreneurs. They were mostly African-American artists who wanted to be able to own their own music as opposed to being exploited. And so they were starting their own labels, their own businesses. And they found the music industry to be incredibly Machiavellian, incredibly cutthroat. Mm-hmm. And 50s once told me, that he was a drug dealer on the streets of Southside Queens when he was 13 years old. He said nothing on the streets prepared him for the business world in the record industry, right? Wow. wow. So anyway, he wanted to meet me because he really liked the 48 Laws. And of course, I, you know, I thought I was very flattered. And so I flew out to New York to meet him. Didn't know what that would come of it. And we met in the back room of a steakhouse. It was like something out of The Godfather. He was surrounded by all of his team of people. And here I was, just me, my lonely white guy self. Kind of Do you remember the steakhouse? I'm kind of curious which one it is. It was, um, it was I can remember it, it was on Madison Avenue and um, like four, between 14th and 15th, just off of Union Square. Okay, got it. I don't know which one that Steak, would be. Steakhouse, it was very, uh, it's on the... Uh, on the uh, east side of the street. Okay. All right. Well, somebody looked that up. There we go. Anyway, um, so he had rented the back room and I was by myself and I was a little bit intimidated because, you know, he's very imposing. He's got all this incredible bling. He had like this, this, this um, bracelet of diamonds that was just insane, you know, just uh. very, very intimidating, but ended up, we were both, we both got along really well because we both had a similar way of thinking. We're both kind of strategists. He's actually has a very strategic, interesting mind. And so we were kind of analyzing what was going on in the music industry. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And the thing about me, when I write books, I'm mostly dealing with dead people. Everybody I write about is dead. And I'm just sitting here in my office. So I thought, 
it would be a chance maybe to write a book about someone who's finally not dead, who I could actually interview and be around and see his laws, how he operates, how he runs his business. What makes somebody who came from the worst environment in the United States, his mother was a hustler he, who died when she was very young. He was raised by his grandparents. He was on the streets dealing drugs. He got shot, nearly killed, shot nine times like that. Mm. How did somebody like that become so successful? What was his secret? I was fascinated by it. So because of that kind of relationship, and he, he enjoyed talking to me, we decided we'd write that book together. And basically what it is, is the secret to 50 success is his fearlessness. So it's a book that's a meditation on, on how you can be fearless in life in many ways. It's not about being violent kind of fearlessness. It's about being in control and feeling secure in yourself and not being afraid of a world that's constantly changing around you. So that's sort of what that book was about. Awesome stuff. So in reading more about you and getting to know you a little bit more in the persona, you're known as kind of the godfather of power dynamics. So as business leaders, what kind of dynamics should we be looking to build with our teams and our peers, especially right now? Well, the book that really goes into that in depth is the book I wrote on strategy, The 33 Strategies of War. And I was sort of fascinated by the military model because it's a book about warfare, right? And sort of one of the most successful stories that I ever read in history about someone who built the best team I think that ever existed on in history is Marshall, George Marshall, who was the head of the Defense Department under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He basically inherited a completely dysfunctional defense department, the equivalent of suddenly becoming the CEO of a company that was incredibly dysfunctional and political from within. There were people there who had jobs going back 30 years who weren't doing anything, you know, all this bureaucracy. And FDR said, we're probably entering a war and you need to completely turn this around within a year or two. And his method was absolutely brilliant. And so the the lessons that I derived from Marshall was that you need to be the person on top. You need to be the person who's the leader, who has the vision, but you can't micromanage things. You can't be the one having your finger in every single decision. Believe me, I worked for a CEO like that, who was the head of this apparel company, and he had to be on top of everything. And it made, it drained all of his energy And it made him terrible. You know, he was trying to control too much. You have to learn how to give up your control, but how to do it right. And so Marshall was brilliant at choosing the best kind of lieutenants who had his spirit, who understood him, who they had a good rapport, he felt empathy for, and they would be go, they would go out and they would enact his decisions for him. And they gave him, he created this environment. It's similar to also what I write about Napoleon where he had access to what was going on in the street level. The foot soldiers, the people in the Defense Department or Napoleon's army were constantly giving him information from the street level of what's really going on. So as a CEO in a world that's changing so rapidly right now, where you're never on top of what's going on, what was happening six months ago is not at all the new environment here. Your isolation is your greatest danger. The fact that you're in your office listening to the people around you and you have no access to what's really happening with your clients, your customers, your audience, that you're not on the street level, you're not hearing them, is going to be the greatest danger. So you need to build a system where you have access to all the information from the bottom up, 
but it doesn't flood you. You have a team of other people there who, are, who know your spirit, who have your mission statement. They call this the Auftragstaktik in German, um, who know the mission, and they're able to reflect your spirit and give you what's really going on. So you get unfiltered information from the bottom down. These are some of the things that are happening. But the most important thing is, and I talk about it in the laws of human nature, is you must have your finger on the zeitgeist. You must know what's really going on in this world because things are changing so rapidly. You have to understand the younger generations that are coming up, the, the, gen, the gen Zs, not even the millennials. You have to understand that they don't have a different way of looking at the world. They have a different spirit. And you have to be able to, to pierce that spirit and understand it on a deep level. You need access to what's really changing in the world right now so that you're not just simply reacting according to the strategies that worked a year ago. You're thinking ahead of where we're going to be in five years, et cetera. So these are some of the skills that I think are very important right now. Oh, I got another question. I got a lot, a lot of questions, but um, I want to also open it up, Trish. So I want you to be ready to, to take some questions from the team because uh, I, our, we've got such great, talented people here. Uh, my question, Robert, um, if, if you can't tell this, I'm sure you can. Being a very, I'm a very emotional person, right? So I use that. I wear it. I wear it on my chest. I wear it on my sleeve. I wear it on my face. Um, you know, and. And as human beings, we tend to be emotional. So how do, how do we detach, detach ourselves from emotions? And maybe the question is, should we detach ourselves? And, you know, and then with that comes like, how do we manage self-control? And that's a tough thing for me uh, to do that. So what, what's your advice? Well, that's very interesting because I, I write a lot about that in my books and I think about it very much. So it's not a question of being rational. It's not a question of suppressing your emotions. That's a misconception because your emotions are extremely important. And neuroscientists have demonstrated this with people who've had that part of their brain damaged where they're not able to have access to their emotions and mm -hmm. they become extremely irrational. So your ability to feel angry, to feel suspicious about someone actually is incredibly important because it gives you access to what may be going on in the world. And when it comes to thinking and being creative in the world, I often think of Einstein, who was probably the most brilliant, rational person. But to be able to spend 20 years studying one thing, he had to be extremely excited and persistent and love the, the, the discovery process. So emotions are extremely vital to your thinking process. So it's not about repressing them. It's about having a balance. It's about being able to know how to use them. And the metaphor that I use, because I'm a big person, I believe a lot in metaphors and explaining ideas, is the rider and the horse. So the rider is the irrational part of your brain, and the horse is the emotion, right? And the horse has all of this power, if you've ever ridden horses, you know that this is an incredibly powerful animal, right? If you don't, if you don't have any control, the horse will go anywhere. <clears throat> it doesn't respect you. <clears throat> Excuse me. It doesn't respect you. It'll just take you anywhere. But if you hold on to it too tight and you squeeze your thighs too much and you're nervous, the horse won't respond to you. It feels your 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 nervousness and it won't do anything. So you have to learn how to relax. You have to know how to use the energy of that horse to take you wherever you want to go. So <clears throat> it's about understanding your emotions, not giving into them, but having a degree of, of awareness and a degree of control. So for instance, 
if you've discovered, if you feel like you're angry, anger is an emotion that trips you up a lot. I don't know if, what the particular one that maybe causes you the most problems. It's the one that causes me a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. I get angry, like with my agent, and then I write that nasty email. And then the next day I go, God, what the hell did I do? That was still so stupid, right? Yeah. That's the one that gets me in a lot of trouble. Okay. The thing is you train yourself just like you train yourself when you're riding a horse. You think first, okay, I'm angry. I'm not going to react. Why am I angry? Is it because of what that person did that they're not responding to me? Or is it because of something my spouse said earlier in the day? Or is it because of some frustration from a week ago? What is the nature of my anger? Why do I feel this way? You may not end up understanding it, but at least you won't react and you'll understand that maybe it has nothing to do with what that person is doing or saying. So with a degree of understanding yourself, of understanding your emotions, of understanding that you don't have conscious access to them, you might be depressed this morning, but you don't really know why you're depressed. You have to think about it. You have to analyze it. You have to try and see what the reality is. With that, you can get this degree of balance so that when you have you're excited about an idea and you don't repress that emotion. It's very important. But you also understand why you're excited, whether it's realistic, whether this project is actually something good. So you need not only intellectual intelligence, you need emotional intelligence. And that's how you can create some kind of more, more of a balance. Fantastic. Well, Robert, thanks so much for joining me uh, in this interview with All Business with Jeffrey has it right here on C-Suite Radio. I thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.